0: Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 31. 17 through 31, if you're using a Pew Bible, it's page 846. Page 846 in the Pew Bible. As I mentioned earlier, we're looking forward to next week, uh, going to uh, one service for the month of July. And again, uh, the reason we're doing this is to remind ourselves of what we'd like to get back to. Uh, it's been over four years since we've gone to two services, and obviously you throw COVID there in the middle of that and a pastoral transition. A lot has happened, and uh, two services, as I understand it, was a kind of a stopgap measure to relieve the, the stress on just the space we have here. And so um, we're going to continue, obviously, after July, Lord willing, um, into services, uh, but July will be a wonderful reminder for us of what we'd like to get back to, of, of one service of our whole body meeting together. And, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to that. Just a few reminders for you. Uh, 9 a.m. will be our worship service. So 9 a.m. It will be our, our worship service. We'll have a fellowship time at 10.10. And I say 10.10 because that really depends upon how long I preach. Um, <laughs> and then Sunday school at 10.30. So basically remember nine. In ten thirty encourage you to come a little early, um, being the first service eight o'clock, some of you just kind of roll in, and I'm not faulting you for that. it's just the nature of the beast. but with more people, maybe allow a few extra minutes to get here and to to get settled um, if possible, come together in one car okay I think mo- that's the case for most people um, or walk few of you okay uh but uh be courteous as you as you park. If you're able, you're free to park over in, in our driveway as well to save space and, and to uh, to basically get everyone to fit in here. Uh, be courteous to others. As you make your way in, uh, Bethany shared with me this week the phrase that Pastor Stephen always used to say was move up and move in. Uh, m M&M, and move up and move in. So we're going to fill this so if you wouldn't mind moving up and moving in. And somebody might be sitting in your seat, just preparing you for that. It's kind of like, you know, multiple universes, like parallel universes. We have the first service, then the second service, and somebody inhabits your space. So uh, just be courteous, and you might not get your spot. There will be some, of course, extra chairs in the back, and we will have some space upstairs (laughs) if we need it. Uh, But we're hoping to squeeze everybody in. Introduce yourself to new people. I know there are some folks who've been visiting the second service that you don't know. So please introduce yourself. Uh, We will be wearing name tags next Sunday, uh, so everyone will be on equal footing. Uh, But introduce yourself. Say, hey, I go to the first service. I don't recognize you. Do you go to the second? And uh, make everyone feel welcome. Introduce yourself to new people. And then lastly, um, enjoy having a full church, having the church body all together. It might be a little cramped. might not be how we're used to doing It might be a little... A uh, little adjustment, but what a wonderful thing to have everyone back together for a few Sundays uh, until we wait for the Lord to provide the opportunity to all meet together in a, in a bigger space. So um, those are some reminders for you as we look forward to next Sunday and the rest of July as well, too. Hopefully, hopefully you found your way to Mark 10 by now. Let's pray, and then I'll read our passage this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus, in life and death, Lord, I'm reminded of this song, uh, Christ, our hope in life and death. What is our hope in life and death? What guides our thinking? It's Jesus Christ, that we are his through faith, that we have forgiveness of our sins, and we have the hope of eternal life. What a wonderful, wonderful gift. Lord, help us now as we come to your word uh, to view it in light of Christ, what he's calling us to as his disciples, that we would not look out for our own interests, but for the interests of others, setting our hearts and minds upon him. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Please follow along as I read. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witnesses, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I'm sure many of you have heard the phrase, an eternal investment. An eternal investment. Obviously, investment carries the The idea of money and retirement and taking something and investing it, you're you're putting in a sense stock or money into something and hoping that over time that value grows. Um, The first pastor I served under in Mason City was very wise this way uh, as a pastor, encouraging me as a young pastor to say, hey, be a wise steward and to look to the future and to set a little something aside, so on and so forth. And so uh, I followed his advice and uh, very thankful for that. I don't know about some of you, but these past maybe year or two has been a little rough on some of those investment things. But the idea of an investment is that it doesn't have immediate result. You invest in something looking to the future. Over time, you will see results It's the little things you do now that in the end will pay dividends. That could be applied to all sorts of things in life. When I was growing up playing sports in high school, it was this summer, right? As a teenager, you just wanted to goof off and have fun all summer. And our coaches would say, no, you put the work in now over the summer and you will reap the benefits or the rewards when the season comes during the school year. And that was just pounded into our heads as high schoolers. And we did see results, right? A little, a little bit now, a little bit then, and continue on a little bit. And over time, you see the results. It's working away at something, of understanding the value of what waits. You play the long game. You understand what is most important. You sacrifice now, understanding what's to come. As we come to this passage in Mark, Jesus meets this man, and he is rich. In our language today, you could say he is filthy rich. He doesn't know what to do with his money. He may know what to do with it, but he has a lot of it. And Jesus says, hey, what are you going to do with this money? What is your attitude towards it? Are you investing it and relying upon it now on earth? But what about for eternity? And it brings us to our big idea here is that earthly merit and material blessing are hindrances to humble dependence on God and entrance into the kingdom. Earthly merit and material blessing. And I'm not saying blessing in the sense that God gives you something and now God's making it harder for you. I'm just saying the result of, of being uh, fruitful in your work, in your labor, having, having stuff. Earthly merit and material blessing are hindrances to humble dependence on God and entrance into the kingdom. We've already read from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 where we understand that earning our salvation is impossible. And material riches, material wealth can be a huge hindrance to humble dependence on God. Even though you may think you are living an upright life, but... Being willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ is difficult. These things make following Christ almost impossible, Jesus says, but yet with God, nothing is impossible. Those who humbly depend upon Christ, though they give up much in this life, will reap that eternal reward, that eternal investment that is not comparable to what we have now. And the kingdom of God upends the structure of this world As Jesus says in his final statement, for those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. So let's look here at this account of this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, and Jesus and the disciples, and how it encourages us. So to remind ourselves where we're at in the flow of Mark's gospel, we're in Mark 10, and Jesus has been uh, having these interactions with the Pharisees and with the disciples about what it means to humbly depend upon him and how that humble dependence is required for entrance into the kingdom. In verses 13 through 16, he says, you must be like a child. A child has nothing, right? They have no financial means. They have nothing to really offer. They are dependent upon their parents and upon others. And Jesus says, that is how you are to be in light of who God is, to humbly depend upon me. And now we see another aspect of this in regards to financial wealth and merit. As he was setting out on his journey, it says in verse 17, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him. So here our first point is the hindrance of material things. The hindrance of material things uh, to humble dependence on God and entrance into the kingdom. The hindrance of material things. We read this man comes running up to Jesus and he kneels before him. It's interesting in Mark's gospel all we read about this man is that he is rich. In Luke and Matthew's gospel we read that he is young and that he is a ruler. So we understand this to be the account of the rich young ruler and we put that together by looking at all three gospel accounts. So this is the rich young ruler. He's young, he has position and authority and he has means. He's got it made. He has everything that you would think you would want as a young man. And he comes running up, and he kneels before Jesus. This exemplifies a lot. He is is set on talking to Jesus because men in the first century did not run. (laughs) That was kind of a no-no. It was unbecoming. Uh, You don't just run. Uh, they wouldn't go out for a jog <laughs> or anything like that. But here is this rich young ruler, and he comes running up to Jesus, and he kneels before him, almost like falling on his face. This is a position uh, of humility, of, of honor, of saying, Lord, you are, you are worthy. Uh, you are a person of honor. I'm going to fall before your feet. And he asks Jesus, he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he says, good teacher. And Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? This phrase was not used because as someone would approach a rabbi or a teacher, they did not want to commit blasphemy by calling someone good is the idea of being above reproach or almost sinless. And so they wouldn't call another rabbi good because it was almost insinuating that they are like God. (laughs) And so this man calling Jesus good, says a couple of things. One, he has an idea of who Jesus is. That Jesus is different than any other rabbi or teacher that's walking around. That this man is different. I'm sure he's heard the reports of the miracles, of the healings, of everything that Jesus has been doing. And so he calls him good teacher and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the idea of being saved, of of being delivered, of having forgiveness of your sins, of entering into the kingdom of God. It's synonymous with all those things. He says, good teacher, what do I need to do to get to heaven? Basically. Now imagine if somebody comes up to you and they say, what must I do to have eternal life? Man, that set that on a platter and hand it to a believer. It's like, I hope you, I hope you take that opportunity to, to share the gospel. But here this man is coming to Jesus and says, what must I do? And Jesus doesn't jump in and say, you can't do anything. You just must believe in me. Jesus starts to ask questions that reveal the man's heart. First, he says this, why do you call me good? He wants to know the man's thinking. Why do you call me good? The man doesn't get an opportunity to answer here. For Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. He's not necessarily rebuking the man, but rather trying to draw out what he means by calling him good teacher. What is his motivation? What is the intent? For Jesus says, nobody is good except for God, and He doesn't say, "Don't call me good teacher." He just simply directs their thinking to why He is good. He says, "No one is good except God alone." No, I'm sure you've heard it. Somebody's saying, "How are you doing?" I'm doing. I'm doing good. That's probably not the best English, uh, but I'm doing well. Uh, I'm doing good no one's good except God, right? Well, okay, you got me there, you're right. Jesus is saying, God is the one who's ultimately good. He's the source of all goodness, of purity, of sinlessness. And he then responds to this young man and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says this, well, verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. What Jesus does is he kind of summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments, starting with honor your father and mother, through do not kill, do not commit adultery, don't steal, lie. All of those are, are summarized here in Jesus' statements, right? He basically recites to him the Ten Commandments, specifically in regard to man's relationship with other individuals. The first part of the Ten Commandments are man's relationship with God, And then the second half are man's relationship with other human beings. And he says, do not do these things. Don't kill, don't don't commit adultery, don't defraud others. Honor your parents. This would be a very basic commands that everyone in the Jewish first century would know and understand and have memorized. From the moment that they were this young, they would be taught specifically the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses. So this is is basic. This is Jewish uh, belief, like 101 right here. And he says to him, this is the man speaking to Jesus in verse 20. He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now we might read that and think, this guy is proud. (laughs) Somebody walked up to you and said, hey, keep the Ten Commandments. You're like, don't worry. I have since I've been a child. I'm good there. (laughs) You might say, yeah, right. You've just lied <laughs> right there. But this man's answer is one of sincerity. It's not one of bragging or full of pride. It's from all outward appearances because the Jews focus on the outward action. He would have kept these commands. He's not wrong in a sense saying that he's kept these from his youth. He's known them. He's observed them. he's sought to keep them. He is He is not saying this from a position of pride, but one of just humble, innocent confessions. I've tried to. I've kept them from my youth. And Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him. That's important. This is one of the very few instances of Jesus, in a sense, or Jesus being said that Jesus loves someone like this. Now it says Jesus loved the disciples and the other fact that Jesus loves the multitudes, but here is an individual that we see that Jesus loves. So in his confession of, I have kept them from my youth, Jesus looked at him and he wasn't indignant like he was towards the disciples. He wasn't angry or frustrated or saying, no, you fool. What did Jesus do? He loved him. He loved him. And he said to him, well, you lack one thing. Jesus starts off by saying, okay, what does your outward life look like? And the man says, I've kept the commandments from my youth. And he says, you have. You have. But you lack one thing. One thing. And what is that one thing? Jesus says to him, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So Jesus says, you lack one thing. One thing. He says, go and sell all you have and give to the poor. So this man who was wealthy, who was rich, had means. Jesus says, go and give all that you have to those in need. For in doing so, you will secure treasures in heaven. A material sacrifice for a heavenly investment or a heavenly reward. And he says, come and follow me. Jesus is saying here, you know this stuff that you have? The value that you place in it? I want you to deny yourself, to sell your stuff, and come follow me. Now this next phrase is revealing of what the man was thinking. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying. It's the idea of of having your heart ripped out. (laughs) Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, full of, of sadness, for he had great possessions. This young man who had the position, who had the power, who had wealth, who was brought up in the Jewish culture and had kept the law since his youth, he had everything going for him. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to enter eternal life or have eternal life? How do I get to heaven? And Jesus says, well, keep my commandments. He says, I, I, I have since I've, I've been a child. He says, okay, then sell all that you have and follow me. What we learn here is not that we are to sell all that we have. You might look at that and say, well, do all of us, if we want to follow Jesus, have to sell everything? No, that's not what Jesus is calling us to. What Jesus is doing by telling the young man to sell all that he has is revealing where his dependence truly lied. He was relying upon his wealth, what he had, his riches. And Jesus says, okay, if you want to follow after me, you have to denounce the trust that you have in your material goods and follow me. Jesus isn't saying you have to be poor to be my follower. You read in the Gospels, there were women who helped support the ministry of Jesus who had means, right? Joseph of Arimathea was a man who had means, so much so that he could, he could have a tomb uh, to, to help the disciples. In the book of Acts, there are many people who have means and money, and they use it for the advancement of the gospel. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, everybody who wants to be a follower needs to be poor. What he's saying is if you want to be a follower, you cannot trust in your own riches. You cannot depend upon things for security Or comfort. Think of a child. I don't know about you, but my kids have their favorite blankies or their favorite stuffies. Maybe you have one right now in your mind that you had as a child or that your children or grandchildren have. And heaven forbid you lose it. Or in our case, we throw it in the washer. That's the worst like hour and a half of one of our kids' life is when their blankie or their sleep sack is in the washer and dryer, to being parted from it, right? Because something that's material or physical, it brings comfort or security. Maybe you like to rub it or hold it, or like little kids do, rub it on their cheeks, or our kids, maybe they're weird, they like to sniff it, right? There's just something about the smell of their blankie. It's a something that's physical, that's material, but it's a source of comfort and security. And as a child, we understand that. But yet as adults, our blankies just become more expensive and easier to hide. If you were walking around with a blankie as an adult, that might be kind of interesting or odd or strange. But how many of us walk around thinking, it's all right, I got a bigger paycheck coming. My investments are doing well. I got this coming in. And we're relying upon all these material things to bring us comfort and security And we're depending upon them for our hope in this life. Jesus tells this man, hey, okay, you're living a good life. That's good. But I can see where your heart truly lies. Your heart is truly depending upon your wealth and your riches. And Jesus says, if you want to follow after me, there's none of this split service stuff. You can't serve your money and you can't serve me. Jesus says that, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money, or the King James. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve those at the same time. It, it, it's split. It's a split, uh, it's a split service. It doesn't work. And Jesus tells this, this young man, you must follow me. You cannot rely upon your earthly riches and earthly wealth. Verse 23, this man has gone away and he's sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God and be wealthy. He says, but it's difficult. Why? Because wealth in and of itself lends itself to being what we as humans rely upon, put our trust in, to find our hope in. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children. And Jesus, he he says that on purpose because what did he just say in verses 13 through 16? He said, be like these children. And Jesus is now talking to his disciples and he says, children, and saying children, he's reminding them of the dependence they're to have on him. He says, how difficult it is. Some translations say uh, how difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Trusting in riches is a hindrance to entrance into the kingdom of God. He said is this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He uses this, this illustration. It, it's sheer hyperbole, right? Some of you sew, and you know what the size of the eye of a needle is. You sit there, and maybe you have a little magnifying glass or something, and you, you lick the end of the thread just to get it through that needle, uh, the eye of that needle, to get it in and loop it around so that you can start. Eye of needle, very small. Camel, very big. <laughs> Jesus is using this illustration so that everyone understands it. We don't necessarily have a lot of camels around here, but we have a few cows. You could say it'd be more, it's easier for a cow to go through the eye of a needle than for someone with wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. This is the illustration that exaggerates the difficulty. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? They kind of look at Jesus and say, Okay, Jesus, if this is impossible, then who can who can enter into heaven? If it's this hard? The disciples are getting it. They realize that this is difficult, that Not everyone is going to enter into this kingdom. Verse 27, And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus reminds them that their salvation ultimately is not dependent upon themselves. They cannot do enough good works. They cannot rely upon God enough to earn their way into heaven. They do not have enough wealth to give away to merit their entrance into the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that ultimately your salvation is not dependent upon you. You cannot figure out how to get into the kingdom of God. You can't. There's nothing you could do. No laws you could keep. No amount of money that you could give away. Those things though, they could be hindrances to your entrance into the kingdom of God. What Jesus says is, with man, it's impossible. And the disciples are realizing the desperate situation that they are in as humans. That there's nothing that they can do to merit themselves to God and entrance into the kingdom. But Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. But not with God. But not with God. For all things are possible. With God. Jesus is just hinting right here at the fact that our salvation is not based upon us and what we do, but rather upon God and what He's going to do. Ephesians 2 8 through 10 For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Our salvation is a gift from God. We cannot earn our way, but yet there are things that can hold us back. From trusting in Jesus. Wealth is one. Our own human merit is another. And as we look at it, we might think, man, this is impossible. But Jesus says, no, with God, it's not. The hindrance of material things, but we understand the hope of eternal reward. The discussion now flips to the disciples. And Peter says, in verse 28 like Peter often does, opening his big mouth. See, we have left everything and followed you. That's kind of a bold statement. After Jesus says all this and the disciples say, man, I don't know if if we can, God, we we can't do this. And Peter says, but look what we've done. (laughs) Like, but we've got a good start, right, Jesus? Jesus doesn't correct Peter. He might have, but we don't have that recorded for us. But Jesus says, Responding to Peter, who says, we've left everything and followed you. He says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. So he encompasses everything. He talks about relationships and real estate, family and furniture, right? People and possessions. He says, you cannot hang on to these earthly relationships and these earthly Uh, possessions. He says, if you've left all those things, and if you've left them and not held on to them for my sake and for the gospel. So it's Jesus and his teaching for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Jesus is saying, there are things that you value in your life, but you cannot put your trust in them. And if you understand this and do not put your trust in them and in a sense forsake them, not that you stop being a father or mother or husband or wife or son or daughter or or a parent, but rather you don't put your trust in those things and you put your trust in Jesus and you hold those things with an open hand and you cling to Christ. He says, there is no one who does this who will not receive a greater blessing. He says, who will not receive in verse 30, a hundredfold now in this time. So you might be thinking, so if we give all to follow Jesus, we're going to get all this blessing here on earth? Well, yes and no. Because he says, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. You might be thinking, well, I'm still in line <laughs> waiting for all my lands and my houses. Anytime, Jesus, you want, to, you want to come through on that, that'd be great. What is Jesus saying here? He is not necessarily talking about direct individual blessing of individuals, but rather as you put your faith in Christ, as you become part of the kingdom, and as you become a fellow follower of Jesus Christ, you gain all these additional relationships. You have entrance into the family of God. In an earthly human terms, I have one sister. In a spiritual, heavenly sense, I have a lot of sisters in Christ. I don't have any human brothers. I have a lot of brothers in Christ. You might think of lands and houses. I, I live in a house. I don't even, don't even own the house. We lived in Minnesota. We owned our own home for like 11 months. And then we, God brought us down here. But I think if I would call up most of you at any given time say, something's happened... I need a place to stay. You would say, yeah, come on in. Even the other day, yesterday, I had need of a burn barrel. Thank you, Gary. Uh, Things like that. How many of you have shared tools and equipment, manpower, shovel power? Yeah, watch the kids. Yeah, I'll do this, I'll do that. This is the blessing that we receive when we don't put our trust in earthly things, but rather we put our dependence upon God and become part of his family. And we have this enlarged family that looks out and cares for and loves one another. Jesus says, but this isn't without persecutions. The end of verse 30, with persecutions. That doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. There are going to be those who hate you because you claim the name of Jesus Christ. But... In the age to come, what is the ultimate blessing we receive? It's eternal life. So this idea of eternal life brackets this section. The man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, depend upon me and only me, not your own earthly merit or your material riches. And he thought that was hard. And Jesus says, if you forsake the earthly treasures and, and material riches that you have, you will gain in different ways by joining the family of God. But ultimately, what is the ultimate result in the age to come eternal life? Then Jesus summarizes this and he says, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is the ultimate redemptive reversal. The world tells you to be first, be have the most, be the richest, all these things, be first, be first, number one. This is what we want. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom says, If you are first, you are last. If you're always seeking out for yourself, you're realizing that you'll last in the kingdom of God. But as you seek to serve others and and forsake those earthly temptations and those earthly things that are hindrances to the kingdom, Jesus says, though you may be last in this world, you will be first in the kingdom. It's this reversal. It's what the kingdom of God does. It flips our world's expectations upside down. Rather than strive and search and be number one and all these things, Jesus says, no, trust me. Depend upon me. Use what you have for the benefit of others. And you'll see how you move from first to last, maybe in this life, but eternally you move from last to first. The common thread, one author says, is the great eschatological reversal that is the characteristic of the present and the future appearance of the kingdom of God. In contrast to the rich and powerful who appear to be first in the present age, stand the persecuted disciples who are forsaken all to follow Jesus. In terms of spiritual realities, they are receiving far more in the present age than eternal life in the age to come. So application here. Three quick statements here. First off, don't put your trust in material things. Don't put your trust in material things. And you might be saying, great, I don't have that many. (laughs) You can still put your trust in material things. You don't have to be rich to trust in material things more than Christ. In fact, the desire for things can often creep in more on those who don't have than those who have. And that's the balance. Whether you have more or you have less, Whatever you have can capture your heart. It can be an idol. And in this passage, Jesus clearly says, those things can be an hindrance. It's not wrong to want nice things or to work hard and be rewarded for your work, but don't let that become your God. Don't let that become your God, for that God is empty and dead, and it fails you. Don't put your trust in material things, whether you have much or you have little. Secondly, Wise stewardship and generosity are key. If you do have a lot, be a wise steward of it. How are you using it for the cause of Christ? How are you using it to bless others? How are you using it to help fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you using it to point other people To Jesus. Use what you have for God's glory. Be a good steward. That term steward demonstrates that it ultimately doesn't belong to you, but rather it's been given to you, and you are uh, supposed to take care of it and use it in its proper way. So, how are you stewarding your money? How are you stewarding your possessions? How are you stewarding your own body that God has given you and your abilities? And be generous. It's easy for somebody to tell you to be generous, right? But we all need to be generous. How can you be a blessing to others? How can you seek to love others in the body of Christ? Wise stewardship and generosity are key. And it's amazing to see how God blesses in a variety of ways when you are generous. Not that you always get back you know, exactly 110% what you gave, but rather the blessing of seeing somebody else rejoice or use something. Be a wise steward and be a generous individual. And lastly, earthly sacrifice often leads to eternal gain. There are things that you may want in this life or the world tells you that you need to have. But it's important to remember that there are sacrifices that we make on earth. But if we do them with the right perspective, it's eternal gain. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay it for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy, right? But lay it for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy, but they are kept. One of my youth leaders growing up <clears throat> was a really good athlete in high school and did well. But he would often say this, life will trash your trophies. He goes, I have a giant box up in my attic of all my trophies from high school and college. And he says, you know what? They've been there for about 30 years and nobody cares. We might have things, we might have accomplishments, we might have wealth, and we might be holding on to and depending on it, as that is what's giving us hope and security in this life. But ultimately, those things fall short Life will trash your trophies. You can't take it with you. But understand that earthly sacrifice, a wise use of the things that God has given you, bears an eternal reward, eternal gain. The call this morning is to trust in Jesus Christ, to understand that earthly material blessings, though we can use them for good, they can often become idols in our lives. And Christ is saying, you can't do that. Rather, turn your heart to me. Depend upon me like a humble child. And trust me. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has said over and over again, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Humbly dependent upon Jesus Christ for your salvation. Understanding that he is the one who's paid the penalty for our sin. That by confessing our sinning and putting our faith and trust in him, we have eternal life. Nothing that we could do or we could buy, but all that he has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to look into your word or to remind us. There are some of us who God has blessed in numerous ways. May we be wise stewards. May we be generous givers. May we be faithful to use what you've given to us to bring you honor and glory. And may it not be things that we find our hope in, but rather Jesus and him alone. God, may we be people who give thanks for what we have, but ultimately seek to use them to bring you honor and glory and to find our rest and our dependence in Jesus. Lord, we love you. We pray for all this in your son's name.